Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. You're supposed to have Chris Scruggs up here this morning. He called me Friday afternoon and said, I'm sick. Would you? I was on punt return team in high school, so I know how to field punts, sort of. And um, so I'm your substitute teacher, which means you can act up in class. And we'll probably get out early. And I probably won't do this the way Chris would do it. He said, Ron, do your thing. I have his slides, but I looked at him, I thought, this is not where I'd go. But hey, we'll see what happens here. Well, I'm, I've, I've been quoting all the way down to the church this morning, you know, uh, wherever two or three are gathered. And I figured, you know, that's all it matters, Ron. It doesn't matter. But I thank you all for turning out on the first day of real winter here in San Antonio. Uh, you are fools for Christ. And, uh, <laughs> Which reminds, I, I never see that verse without remembering what Louis Abendon, he gave me my charge at my ordination as I'm kneeling on the steps in the chancel in the sanctuary. And the only part of the charge I remember is he said, Ron, uh, be a fool for Christ, but don't be a damn fool. <laughs> and uh, I think I was a fool for Christ most of my ministry, but I know I was a damn fool a lot of times. And, um, and Lewis would usually point that out to me when I was. Well, um, we're going to begin our study of the book of Daniel. And, um, you know, I was talking to Sandy Wilson, who's our LZ talk guy. Uh, he was the pastor of my wife's home church, not while she was there. Second Pres Memphis, that's where we were married. And Sandy and I are not good friends. We're acquaintances over the years. And this week we're talking about just how bad uh, the church is, bad shape the church is in 21st century America. Um, it's the most biblically illiterate that the people of God in America have ever been. And uh, theologically illiterate as well. And that's a, a bad thing. And so I've, I've known that for a while, and, and so that's why I'm going to say some things that y'all are going, why does he keep repeating this? Because we're at a place, folks, at least I feel like I want to stand before Christ and say, I tried to turn it back in the right direction whenever I get an opportunity to do. So uh, what I say whenever I'm teaching a book on the Bible, I don't want to assume anything of anyone. Some of you are long-time mature Christians. Some of you may not be. Some of you may be searching. Uh, I'm not going to judge anybody's motives while they're here, but I'm going to lay out some things that I think need to be said every time we look at any passage of Scripture. The first thing we need to be saying is as Presbyterian-type Christians, we believe the Bible's not just an interesting book of wise sayings or you know, ancient Near East uh, stories and helpful hints for harmful habits. We believe, not my opinion, this is what the Presbyterian Church says in its confessions, that this is the infallible, inerrant word of God. In other words, when we read scripture, we're not looking at words on a page. God is speaking to us. So we need to take very seriously uh, what what we find in here. And some of it we may not like. I don't like a lot of the Bible. There's stuff in there I wish wasn't in there. Stuff that I'm like, oh, no. Um, 
But from cover to cover, uh, you know, we believe this is God speaking to us. And the one thing I've learned by reading through, I've just finished my 47th time straight through the Bible. I don't say that to brag. I just, that shapes me, that hones me, that encourages me to face this culture we're in today. And every time I read through it, I'm reminded the God we worship is a God who will not be domesticated by us. He will not be declawed or defanged. And yet, at the same time, he is a God who loves you and me passionately to the point to really rather die than live without us. And that's why I sent Christ. And so you've got to hold those two things in tension. And we don't, we don't like tension. We want it all nice and comfortable, with a little bow on it and everything else. Uh, but if you take God seriously, if you follow him where, you lead, where he's leading, it's, it's not going to be into, uh, down the primrose path. I always tell people, look where Jesus is going in Scripture. He's always going toward the least, the last, and the lost. He's always moving toward pain. I don't want to go toward pain. I want to be protected from pain. Um, but that's the deal about following uh, Christ. So... Um, we need to take this seriously. That's the way I'm approaching this. This is the infallible Word of God, and we've got to take everything we find here uh, seriously. Now, Daniel takes place in, begins in the 7th century B.C., about 605 B.C., and we need to talk a little bit about what's going on. The Israelites have been carted off by the nation of Babylon. And uh, that's called the exile. We call it the exile, but it was really kind of a, a two-phase, maybe even three-phase transportation of the Israelites into Babylonian captivity. The first happens in the year 605. Actually, first is the northern kingdom of Israel is carted off. Daniel's in the southern kingdom. And in 605, he's carted off with a bunch of, of his fellow Judeans. Uh, but then the exile's not really finished until about 586 B.C. when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and everything else. And um, we have a hard time appreciating what the exile meant for them. Like if we were carted off into exile... We would not like it. Um, let's just say China comes over here and takes this whole class and puts us in exile in China. We go, well, we miss living in the United States. Um, but spiritually, it, it would probably maybe hone us into be more uh, authentic Christians. Uh, for the Jews, though, when, they, when the Babylonians destroyed the temple, that's just something, they had this concept of God, his presence being associated with the temple and the Holy of Holies. So when that's destroyed, where is God? I mean, there was this, we would never ask that. Where is God? Well, he's here with us in China, and he probably maybe even feels closer to us because we're in exile. The Jews, this was just totally devastating. It got to the very root, the core of their being as, as spiritual beings. And um, so keep that in mind. 
And the book of Daniel really breaks into two parts. The first six chapters are stories, sagas of these good Jewish boys, uh, sort of court sagas. They're up in the, the elite part of the Babylonian government and encounter all kinds of wild and crazy things. And then chapters 7 through 12 are really prophetic, the prophecy part. Um, Daniel is the bridge between both of them. He's involved in chapters 1 through 6 in some of these stories. But then he's the one making the prophecies in 7 through 12. And so Daniel is one of those unique pieces of literature in Scripture called apocalyptic literature. Um, Apocalyptic meaning uh, catastrophic. Uh, These visions Daniel sees uh, like Revelation. There's a lot of connection between the book of Revelation and Daniel. And it's an upending of things as normal and that's what God's going to do when he brings his kingdom into fulfillment. And uh, apocalyptic literature, literature though is kind of like poetry. Sometimes it's hard to understand. Um, is it literal? What this is gonna, or is this a metaphor? Or, and a lot of it just, I think we need to take a humble approach and say, I don't know what that's saying. That's okay. John Calvin wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible, except one. One Daniel, he did write one on Revelation. They asked him why. He said, I don't understand it. So if John Calvin has a problem with apocalyptic literature, don't feel that you're a theological pygmy or something if you don't uh, get it and you don't get the last half of Daniel. It's okay, but we'll try to, and I don't know who's going to be teaching those sections, but don't shy away. And if you're teaching one of those things, you get up here, don't, don't be afraid to say, I just don't know what this says, and we can open it up for discussion. The first six chapters are pretty easy to understand. Um, and uh, if you ask me to zero in on the most important message of the entire book, I would boil it down to one word, and that word is character. What does it mean to have a godly character. Here it is, MLK weekend. Remember what Martin Luther King Jr. said? That he was hoping there would be a time when everybody in America would be judged on their character, not the color of their skin. Where are we in 2024? (laughs) We're in this culture, death, darkness, tyranny and stupidity and all the work that was done to try to get rid of racism it seems to have been just we're back um, and it's upside down and uh, you know all this stuff I, you know I'm almost afraid to get on an airplane now <laughs> you know if I don't, I don't care if my the guy picks up our trash if he's been to college or not, or if he's an expert in trash gathering. I don't care. But if I go in on, and I'm going to have brain surgery, I want to make sure that that doctor didn't get in there because of anything other than he's an expert in doing that. And uh, speaking of brain surgery, Martin Luther once said, if I was going to have brain surgery, I'd rather have a Mohammedan 
who knew what he was doing rather than a Christian who didn't. So uh, just because your doctor's a Christian doesn't mean he's an ex expert necessarily. So I'm all for meritocracy in the areas of life where it's life and death, like airplanes and surgery. Uh, but Daniel's all about character. And that may be comforting to us, and maybe it's disturbing to me because I look at my life and I go, I'm not like Daniel. Um, where would I have given in if I had been taken into Babylon exile? Um, so this might be a little a bit convicting uh, for us. Daniel's name means God is my judge. You know, we don't like to talk about God being a God of judgment, but again, this is a part of why it's important to build your, no, you shouldn't be building your image of God. You should be taking, receiving what God reveals of himself from cover to cover. He reveals himself as a, as a judge, but also as a God of mercy and grace. And again, it's holding those two things in tension. The temptation of at least most American pastors today is to dodge texts in Scripture that talk about the judgment of God. They want you to feel good, leaving the church every Sunday, upbeat. Um, that's why I tell young pastors, preach Lectio Continua. That means straight through books of the Bible or sections of Scripture. That's what I did for 44 years. That forced me to preach texts I'd never choose. I'd like, I ain't gonna preach that, uh, but I had to. Uh, and that forced the congregation, the three that I served, to hear sermons they didn't wanna hear. But I'm ordained to preach the whole counsel of God, not what makes you feel good, or not what puts you down. But it's the whole counsel. We need, that's how we are honed by scripture into authentic Believer. So God, Daniel's name means God is my judge. And um, he is a judge. And we're told at the end of time there will be a judgment day. Now, does anybody in this room need to fear that? Not if you're a Christian. Not if you're a Christian. Some people have described it as being like a, a courtroom scene where you'll be on trial and God is the judge and Satan is the prosecutor. And he'll throw it out on the table, all the smoking guns, and they'll be there for all of us. Even Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, they're smoking guns. But then Jesus will step forward as your defense attorney and say, Your Honor, I've paid for all that on the cross. And we'll be not guilty. So you do not need to fear God as your judge. You do need to respect him as your judge. And, uh, of course, Daniel has three key friends, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Hananiah means God is gracious. So here we have that, right, in the names of the, the main characters of the book. You have God is my judge, and God is gracious. And a, I want to stop and talk a little bit, before we get into the book, about grace. Because we talk about grace all the time as Christians. We sing amazing grace. But do we really understand it? I don't think most Christians do. Because I like to ask Christians, um, you know, do you know for, a sh for sure, do you have full assurance that when you die you're going to be saved? 
most Christians I ask that to, they try to be humble. And they say, well, who can be sure? You know, I just hope my what? Good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. And I go, oh, no, 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 no. And that is the theology of Islam. That is not the theology of the Bible or of the Christian faith. How would you know if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? Muhammad said, I don't know where I'm going to wind up in eternity. I don't know if my good deeds will outweigh my bad. Um, you don't have to worry about that. You, you have no less a leg into heaven if you're a Christian than Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. And uh, you have no more guarantee of being in heaven than does Adolf Hitler. Well, I'm not that bad. No, it doesn't matter. It's one boat. There's only one sin boat. There's not like white collar sin and, you know, kind of uh, mundane sin and then Adolf Hitler. No, there's only one boat. If all you've done throughout your whole life is steal a Snickers bar when you're in eighth grade, you're in the same boat with Adolf Hitler. And there's not anything you can do about it. You can't row the boat fast enough to get into heaven. Nothing you can do. Um, Paul puts it this way in our men's Bible study on Thursday morning. We're studying Colossians. And last Thursday, uh, Paul talked about, you know, before Christ came into your life, you were dead in your trespasses. Well, what can dead people do? You can go out to sunset and with a list of tasks for everybody in there to do. How many years will it take the folks to complete those tasks? Don't hold your breath. Dead people can't do anything. When I was the youth minister here, I became friends with Scott Appleton. He was uh, All-American at University of Texas football. He was the number one NFL draft pick in 1963, the year Texas won the national championship. Scott became a Christian, and I had him come to speak to our senior highs. And I'll never forget the illustration. He, he was talking about you're dead in your trespasses, and he said, if you threw a dead dog into a river, and there was a waterfall, really steep waterfall, about a half mile down, and you didn't want the dog to go over the waterfall, I mean, what chance does that dog have of not going over that waterfall? He's dead. You know, when you're dead and you're thrown in a river, you just go wherever the river goes. Now, there's no way he can start paddling upstream. There's no way he can get over to the bank and pull himself out. Unless you could bring that dog to life, that dog's going to go over the waterfall. That was a powerful illustration. Scott said, and that's all of you kids and me. Because until the Holy Spirit comes into your life and regenerates your heart, you're dead. You can't do anything. Now, some of you are thinking, no, wait a minute. I did do something. I chose Christ. I accepted Christ. You did. But guess what? You did that after the Holy Spirit regenerated, re-enlivened your heart, and he enabled you to make that choice. You didn't sit down and go, well, add this up and weigh this against that. I think God's the way to go. No, that's, when you and I become Christians, that's a 100% act of the Holy Spirit. Now, we cooperate. Yes, we accept, we choose, we decide to follow. But, um, and that's grace. 
You see, we don't deserve. We deserve to go over the waterfall. Grace is God, despite no merit on our own, no ability to earn our way out of that river. God comes in, plucks us out, regenerates us, and we're saved. That's what the whole of the scriptures say. Um, then there's Mishael. His name means uh, who is what God is? Well, the answer to that question is no one, nothing. God is the totally other being in the universe. Our default mode, if we want to admit it or not, is you and I are always trying to make God into our image or an image that we like. That's why knowing the Bible cover to cover is so important. If you don't, you'll always wind up, John Calvin said, the human heart is a factory of idols. We just make idols out of everything. And we want a God who's comforting and comfortable. I like to say probably a cross between Santa Claus, Big Bird, and everybody's grandfather. That's the God we'd like. And uh, who is what God is? Nobody. Um, so beware of fashioning God into anthropomorphizing God, making him into an extra powerful human being. Uh, he's totally other. Nothing in the universe is like him. And then Azariah, his name means God is my helper. And that's an important biblical truth to hold on to. Whatever jams you and I have found in life, whatever trials and tribulations we go through, Jesus said, I am with you always. Not just when things are going good. Uh, not just when you feel like I'm with you. I am with you always. He is there to help us and sustain us. That does not mean you may not die. Does not mean you may not go through horrendous persecution or disease. Or, but Christ has you in the palm of his hand. He will never let you go. He, will, he never loses one of his sheep. He will sustain you, and you'll make it. You'll make it. Um, my friend Jim Dennison in Dallas says, you know, Ron, when, when you've got a, a life-threatening illness, only two things can happen to you, and both are good. Either you're going to be healed, or you're going to be with the Lord. And Paul in Philippians says that latter is better than the former, although I find myself wanting the former rather than the latter. I'm no... I'm in no hurry to die. Okay, um, so Daniel has these uh, three buddies. Now, I don't think I'm going to use Chris's slides because they don't coincide with, well, I'll, I'll use a couple of them here. Just give you an idea of what Israel looks like today uh, after numerous wars where Israel is attacked, they acquired more land. Uh, but this is what it looked like back in uh, biblical Old Testament times. Um, Israel during the two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and Jerusalem's down in the southern kingdom. And Israel during the Babylonian exile, you'll see the Babylonian empire uh, was pretty extensive around the Mediterranean area. They were probably the most powerful 
and I'm not going to use these. What I'd like to do, if you have your Bibles with you, open them up. If you don't have a Bible, I think there's some on that table over there. I want to just walk through all the verses in chapter 1 and drill down on them. Uh, there is so much stuff in here, rich meat, that um, you should be very full when you leave here today spiritually. So chapter 1 of Daniel, uh, verse 1 roots this in history. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Well, that we know would be 605 B.C., six centuries before Christ comes to earth. And we're told that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes to Jerusalem in that year and besieges it. Now, remember, the northern kingdom of Israel has already been carted off into Babylonian exile. This is one of the things I just don't get about the people of faith back in the Old Testament. You know, they already saw their brothers and sisters get carted off. God had warned them through prophets for centuries, if you don't wise up and turn back to me, because they were, they were worshiping foreign gods and uh, making idols, and they wanted to be like everyone around them. They wanted to be like the surrounding culture. They wanted a king. They wanted um, a faith that was more wild and crazy and uh, didn't have a lot of prohibitions. And uh, can you think of any country that's like that today? Um, if you, here's one of the things we need to remember as we go through any text of Scripture. First of all, look at the plain meaning of the text. This is going to be especially important when we get into chapter 7 through 12 and all these apocalyptic dreams and visions and everything. Look for the plain meaning of the text, and it, sometimes it may not be plain. Oftentimes, it is very plain. Um, Mark Twain, who is a, not a really good Presbyterian, but he did belong to the Presbyterian church, um, they asked him one time, do you read Scripture? And he said, uh, no, I don't. And then somebody said, is that because you don't understand it? He said, no, because I do. C.S. <laughs> Lewis, I mean, not C.S. Lewis, um, W.C. Fields, <laughs> a lot of difference between those two yeah. guys. Um, he, was, he was not a believer, and he used to chastise the Christian faith and mock it and everything. Somebody found him reading a Bible one time, and they said, I'm shocked to see you reading the Bible. And he said, I'm looking for loopholes. <laughs> so what's the plain meaning of the text? Then another important question to ask of any verse or text you read is, what is God saying here? Remember, this is not an exercise in information about strange ancient Near Eastern practices or faith systems or whatever. This is God speaking. So what is God saying? What is, first of all, what is he saying to the people back then? Then you have to ask the question, what's he saying to us today? And then gets real personal. What's he saying to me? In light of this text, what am I to be and to do? I don't like to get to that part. I like to get the first two questions. Um, oftentimes, I, I'm, I prefer information rather than transformation. 
And we Presbyterians have been great on transfer of information. We're known as the theologians of the church. We've always had the best preachers, the best theologians. But we're not good on transformation. Okay, how is this changing your life? To read the book of Daniel and walk away and say, well, I learned a lot, but it doesn't make a difference in your life. You've missed the whole point why God gave us his word. So we start off rooting this in history, uh, 605 BC. Now verse two, it says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, that sounds, why do they put that in here? Um, doesn't mean a whole lot to us. If you're a Jew, this is, this is spitting on the cross. They've taken things from the house of God, the temple in Jerusalem, and stuck them into some pagan temple in Babylon. Again, if we're carted off into China and they come and they take furniture from the sanctuary, uh, even the cross in there, and they put it in a Shinto temple in China or something. That would offend us, but we, that wouldn't devastate us. We know that that cross is just a bronze cross, but to take these vessels of gold and silver uh, that were used in Hebrew worship and put them in a pagan temple, that Daniel, God through Daniel, wants us to know this is totally blasphemous and just rips the heart of an Israelite wide open. Um, and so he puts them in the, in the temple. Then the com king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. So as the Jews are carted off into Babylonian captivity, Nebuchadnezzar says, let's get the cream de la cream of them, and I'd like to put them in service to me. Bring them into the government and groom them. And so Daniel and his three friends happen to be some of those folks. And verse 4, we learn that they're youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and then to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. That's another word synonymous for Babylonians. So um, in verses 3 and 4, what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do here is he wants to indoctrinate the biggest, the brightest, the best youth of Israel indoctrinate them into his godless culture. Do you see that happening anywhere? Like close to home today? Anybody a graduate of Harvard here? I think you're correct, but also he wants to eliminate any opposition. Now, if you've got the biggest, brightest, best, they're probably going to see through your scheme more likely than the peons. 
So you're going to work extra hard to get them. What did Lennon say? Give me your kids for four years and I've got them. That's not being lost on the educational system in the United States right now. Um, it's not being lost. You know, we've, we pulled our grandson out of a real good public elementary school here, Hidden Farms. Nothing wrong with that. But he goes to Great Hearts now, and, um, which started as a Christian private school in Arizona, spread to Texas. And uh, until a few years ago, it was overtly Christian and cost like $15,000 a year to go. Bear County chartered them a few years ago. So they can't be overtly Christian, but they teach the Bible as literature. And uh, in fourth grade, my grandson William's learning Latin uh, and he's learning algebra, which I didn't learn until I was a junior in high school, and the great classics, and he's learning how to think. He's not being indoctrinated. No electronics allowed, no cell phones, no laptops in the school, period. And if a kid raises his hand and says, what about what's going on? They, we don't talk about that here. You talk about that with your parents. We're here to teach you to read and write, to think. Um, because this, my experience is this culture is now getting our kids at a young age. I mean, if they, they say, psychologists say that the basic character of a kid is pretty much set by age six. If that's true, you know, we don't have to worry about the high school. We have to worry about kindergarten and preschool. Give me your kids for four years and I've got them forever. So, as Christians, we are not trying, we believe one of the ways we worship God is through the service of the mind. And indoctrination, brainwashing, all that kind of stuff, has nothing to do with the Christian faith. I believe, and Christians have always believed, that if we can teach people to think and to read God's word for themselves, um, the Holy Spirit does the rest and begins to form Christian character. So bringing somebody to Christ by the point of a sword is anti-biblical, anti-Christian. Or lying to them, things go better with Christ. Remember that saying? Well, yeah, basically, but a lot of things. If you follow Jesus, tell that to somebody in North Korea. Things go better. <laughs> it could cost you your life. Um, if you follow, Jesus said, if you think they persecuted me, if you follow me, they're going to do the same thing to you. So um, back in our former denomination, uh, the progressive side of the church said, we do not need to evangelize Jews or Muslims because they're all part of the Abrahamic covenant. What does Paul say in Acts? To the Jew first. Um, and uh, anyway, don't get me started. Okay. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar wants to indoctrinate these guys, deculturize them from their Hebrew culture and make them into Chaldeans. And so they're, they're going to be teaching them uh, 
the literature and the language of the Chaldean. If you want to get somebody to think like you, you have to control what they see and hear and read, and you need to control the language. Now, if you read Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto, that's one of the six key points he says in there. Control the language of the culture, and pretty soon... And so up is down. What is a woman? Five years ago, people were going, why are you nuts? Now we're, we're not sure. I was a biologist, scientist for in the ministry. Uh, my master's is in reproductive physiology. There are only two sexes, folks. You either have an X and a Y chromosome making you a male, or you have two Xs making you a female. Oh, there is a third chromosomal thing. It's called XYY. And most of those guys are in the prisons around the country. It's an extra Y chromosome. It seems to make you more apt to violence. That's why when people say, what if they could prove there's a gene for homosexuality? They have no choice. I'd say, well, we know there's a gene to make you more violent, but we don't say, well, you killed that person. You ran them over with your car on purpose, but you have that extra Y chromosome. Go your way. No, they still, you're still responsible to live under the rubrics of the Word of God. And uh, whether we like it or, or not. So control the language, control what they read. And um, so, uh, let's see. Okay, verse 5. If you look at verse 5 king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Now, the first question that comes to my mind in reading Daniel 1 is, what's with this food thing? We're going to see that Daniel and his three friends, they don't want to eat the food. Why is that? And people have debated this for years, centuries. Um, is it because their food is bad? You know, Paul, um, in 1 Corinthians and other places, they, he, they have this whole thing in the early church about, should you eat food that's been offered to idols? Paul says, you know, an idol isn't a real God. Um, if you're a mature Christian, and somebody offers you food, and it's been offered to idols, enjoy the hamburger. You know, you know, but if there's a young Christian who's not mature yet, and for some reason, if he saw you eating food offered to idols that might wreck his faith or make him stumble, then, you know, back off on that. It, it's like if, if you go, I've made many mission trips into to Mexico, if you're a Presbyterian in Mexico, one of their cardinal things is you don't drink. Now, it doesn't say that in the Bible, but that's just, that's the way they differentiate, <laughs> one of the ways they differentiate themselves from Roman Catholics. Roman Catholics drink, we don't, and some other things too. Um, when I go to Mexico, I like to drink a beer, but I will not drink it when I'm with Mexican Presbyterians. Why? Simply because that's a stumbling block for them. I had a 
he's not a close friend, but he, he went to study, do a PhD at the Free University of Amsterdam. He's a Presbyterian pastor, and he went to his, and he pastored an English-speaking church in Amsterdam. At his first Presbytery meeting, there was only like 35 pastors, and they were all around this big table, and they were conducting the business of the Dutch Presbytery, and they had a break. Now, in Presbytery meetings in the United States, a break, you go out, and they have grapes and cheese and crackers and punch or something. At this Presbytery meeting, a guy pulled out a bottle of gin, and there was a glass at each person, and they passed the bottle of gin around, and then opened a box of cigars and passed them around. And all these guys were lighting up cigars and, and sipping gin. Well, my acquaintance, he doesn't smoke and he doesn't drink. And so when the gin bottle came to him, he just passed it on to the other guy. And when the cigars came by, he just passed it on. Didn't take either of those things. Because he doesn't do those, he didn't want it. Well, it was obvious the tenor of the group changed toward him. And uh, it, it was so obvious that finally he raised his hand and said, did I say something or do something that has really, you know, wrecked our relationship? And one of the guys said, well, yeah, you dissed us. They didn't talk like that. But you didn't respect us. You didn't take a drink of gin and you didn't smoke scars. So it's like you're putting yourself above us. And he said, well, I don't drink and I don't smoke. And they said, why didn't you just tell us that? We thought you were putting us down. Now, culturally, that was a faux pas, uh, even though biblically. So we try not to do things that make other people stumble. And, uh, but what about this food thing? It's probably not because it was bad food. Maybe it was all pork. Some people wonder if that's what their main dishes were, bacon and stuff. And good Jewish boys are not going to eat that. Um, I came upon one theory that I like. I mean, this was the best food. This is from the king's royal table. Again, if you're, if you're going to win people over, control what they read and hear, control the language, and get them used to the good life. You know, uh, so they'll be more apt to say, you know, I like this. And uh, so could it be that they object to doing this because they're determined not to be enculturated by Nebuchadnezzar? That's, that's my theory. Can't prove it from the text, but it, I think it probably is true. So um, in verse 5, you've got one of the most important... Uh, I'm sorry. Go down to verse 8. Among, and, and then it goes... Uh, they were to be educated for three years. Verse 6, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. And we've already talked about Daniel. He calls Belteshazzar, which means God is my judge. And Hananiah is called Shadrach, uh, which means uh, God is gracious. And uh, Azariah or Mishael, which means what God, who is, who is what God is. And Azariah, God is my helper. And the chief eunuchs, verse 7, chief of the eunuchs gave them names, and uh, we see their names. 
Now, in verse 8, we have one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. And that's the word, but. So here they are. They, now, imagine you're in exile in Babylon. You don't know what's going to happen to you. Are you going to be a slave, you know, building, working in a rock quarry or something? I remember in, in 2010, I was a U.S. delegate to the Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization in Cape Town, South Africa. And we had one day off out of 12. And so I got on the boat to go out to Robbins Island. And that's where Nelson Mandela was put in solitary confinement for 21 years. And uh, the only time he wasn't in solitary confinement was when he was basically a slave and the, the rock quarriers there, they would just sit there and bust up limestone and and uh, I mean, these guys are probably thinking, is that what's going to happen to me? When the Jews were put in concentration camps, most of them were worked until they dropped dead. That's what these guys are probably wondering. Am I, am I going to have a horrific life here in... So the idea of when they're summoned, you're going to be up here. We're going to basically disciple you for three years learning language and literature and the wisdom of our land, and, and you're going to die from the king's royal table. Three meals a day. Wow. I'd be going, yay, yay. That's why I say, I don't see myself being much of a Daniel. I'd probably go, man, thank you, Lord. Thank you. <laughs> and I might be easily seduced right into what Nebuchadnezzar wanted me to be. Verse 8, but, <laughs> but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Jews drank wine. So it was not about, you know, if you drink, you're not a believer, or if, or if you don't drink, you are a believer. No, Jews drank wine. Jews ate food. Now, maybe there was pork in there. I don't know. But that's not the point of it. It's, I think Daniel and his three friends with him, they're going to be a part of a resistance movement to this culture that they are now surrounded with. Now, I oftentimes talk about our present culture as being the culture of death, darkness, tyranny, and stupidity. That was the Babylonian culture. Death, they practiced child sacrifice, those Babylonian names that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, those are named after moon gods that they worshipped. And they would sacrifice children. To those. So it was a culture of death, a culture of darkness. It was spiritually dark. I mean, it was just awful. It was tyrannical. You had a dictator. And this guy was not a benign dictator. This guy was the real mean type. And stupidity. Um, it's just ripe with stupidity. Our culture today. The parallels are here. So how does verse 8 impact your life and mine? To me, it says, am I going to go along with all this? If you do, you'll be rewarded. I'm glad I'm not a young pastor. I mentor a bunch of young pastors, and I said, I, guys, I, you've got to be prepared. If you're a biblically, biblically faithful pastor, you're going to be 
this is going to be rough. Three-fourths of my ministry, the culture was with me. And then it started kicking against the goads toward the end, but I didn't even really notice it until I was out. And then I see friends of mine that uh, are not allowed into churches, into presbyteries, uh, because they wouldn't toe the line on abortion and homosexuality and everything else. And, uh, and the culture's turned totally uh, against us. I don't, I don't know if I've ever said this in here, but when I came back here as your senior pastor, uh, of course, Express News was right across the street, and they were, we were a target of theirs because we were leaving the denomination, and they were trying to make the case it was all about sexual stuff. Um, I can show you evidence going back to 1955 <laughs> that this church was uncomfortable where the PCUS, the Southern Church, was going, has always been. Louis Abendon, myself, Jim Singleton, uh, all voted against reunion with the Northern Church because we th thought that was a sinking ship. And we had enough problems with the Southern Church that you know, the physics of it was not good. Lash two sinking ships together and hope it floats better? Nah. And uh, Lewis was heavily involved in the renewal movement in the PCUSA as I was and Jim Singleton. Um, but when I came back here, I said to our communications guy who's not here anymore, I said, I want you and me to go across the street and I want, I want us to meet with the editor and the reporter that's been assigned to us to follow what we're doing. And we went over there and spent about an hour and I laid out everything. I said, this is not about human sexuality. This is about the deity of Christ and the authority of scripture, it always has been. This other stuff is just symptomatic of when you get off base on those things. And I did most of the talking and they're taking notes and both of them said, we've never heard this before. I said, we're not mean, we're not against homosexuals, we're not against, we're not against anybody. We want them to come to Christ and, and be liberated and know new life in Christ. And they said, God, thank you. Thank you so much for coming. So how does the story come out on the front page of Express News? Homophobic church. Blah, blah, blah. So I called the reporter. She was apologetic. I'm so sorry, Dr. Skates. They wouldn't let me print the story the way I wanted to write it. And the editor came up with a headline. I said, so, you know, if you control the media, <laughs> you control the narrative. So, uh, but Daniel says, we're not going to line up with this. Um, therefore, verse 8, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Verse 9, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. Here's God. Uh, let me say it this way. We will only survive a culture of darkness, death, tyranny, and stupidity if God wills for us to do so. We, we can't change this culture. Um, but we can choose to exercise character in the midst of that culture, no matter what the culture does to us. They can take everything away from you, but one thing, that's your character. And that's what Daniel and his three buddies decided to do. Um, we're not going to give up who we are and what we know to be true just to get along. That's easier said than done. 
I remember two families in my church in Dallas, two different occasions making appointments with me. They were leaving the church. I'm like, oh, what do they do now? No, we love you, Ron. But the husbands, their companies put them through sensitivity training. And they were told, if we find out that you're a part of any organization that's anti-LBGB, you'll be fired. And they said, you know, we have kids. We've got to feed our... I said, you go with my blessing, I understand. Because we were, we Google Highland Park Prez, Dallas. We planted a church down in the Oaklawn area of Dallas, which is the center of the, for the former practicing homosexuals, now married. And we were the pariah of the left after that. So they couldn't risk being known as members of Highland Park Prez. So they left. So it's easier said than done. I'm not putting them down. They went with my blessing. But the pressure's on pastors. It's on you all. It was just like it was on Daniel and his three friends. But Daniel says, we're not going to go along. You can't take our character away from... So he cuts a deal with this chief eunuch. And God gives them favor. See, God honors you and me when we will not break character. It doesn't mean we get a, may not go like it does with Daniel, we get made, you know, a big leader in the government, but he'll honor you in some way. It's more honorable and more rewarding to be in a prison cell knowing you have not given in than to be vice chancellor of the whole government and know you've sold out. Again, it's easier said than done. It's that old thing, you know, a a hero dies but one death. A coward dies a thousand times. You have to live with yourself at the end of the day over and against this compared to what the culture's saying. And the temptation is just, the culture's much more appealing than the Bible in a lot of areas. Um, so it's, it's easy to go, oh, well, you know, everybody else is doing it. And there's plenty of Christians out there saying, it's okay. You can dodge this part of the word. Well, I don't think so. You've got to live with yourself at the end of the day. And so, um, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Verse 10, the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear, my lord, the king, who assigned your food and drinks. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a lightweight dictator. This guy says, this could cost me my job or my life. And I I can't do this to you. He assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So Daniel says, well, look, let's try a little experiment here. Let's just do a test, test run for 10 days. Test run. Verse 11, the Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Now, some vegans have hopped in here and said, see, the Bible teaches to be a vegan. Uh, Vegetarianism is the way to go. Uh, no, Jesus ate fish. 
And I don't think you can make that argument here. Um, what's going to happen here is a miracle, not a, a, a uh, diet plan. Um, if you're eating the rich food from the king's table, that's probably going to beef you up more than if you eat a bunch of vegetables. But this is an experiment. This is a miraculous thing. Um, and then Daniel says, uh, verse 13, then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who have been eating at the king's table be observed and deal with your servants according to what you see. So Daniel's a scientist here. You know, science is all about just trying experiments and see what happens. And uh, so... Uh, Huh? He believes in God. Yes, yes. Yeah, he, he, and again, I think he's probably prompted by the Holy Spirit to offer this test. And uh, so in verse 14, so he listened to them in this manner and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So um, here the test results prove that God's at work here in the midst of it. He's honoring their refusal to break character. Verse 17, and for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. It doesn't say giving them skill in all the literature and wisdom of Babylon. It just says he gave them wisdom and skill in all literature. and They were drawn back on what they had been raised in in Judah. The scriptures. Uh, that's what I think is, that verse is saying. In verse 18, at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These guys stood out heads above everybody else. They were the cream de la creme. In verse 20, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. These guys, God gifted them with great wisdom. There's a difference between intelligence and wisdom. A big difference. Um, I've said this in here before. The wisest person at my seminary, Union Seminary in Richmond, Virginia, was not my, any of my professors, not the president of the seminary, not my fellow students. It was James. James was one of the custodians. James never went past a third grade. James was a mighty man of God. He was a prayer warrior. He, he just, when you met him, you just, you didn't have to ask him, are you a believer? You just knew this guy. He's the guy the professors would go to when they were in a jam. And we students are going, James put six kids through college on a custodian salary at Union Seminary of Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, which is probably not very much. He was wise. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They're wise. 
Curios. Yeah, they're referring to a ministry at Alamides High School called Curios. Um, that was started by uh, Rabbi Stahl at Temple Bethel, <laughs> inadvertently. I used to go, as, when I was a youth minister, I'd go on the Alma Heights campus and have lunch with kids. I would go not to talk about Jesus because I figured they expected me to do that. So I would never talk about Christ unless they brought it up. And I would go every Wednesday. And kids would gather around. We'd just talk about whatever they want to talk about. And Jewish kids started coming. And uh, I remember a Jewish kid asked me one day, because uh, one of our kids said, yeah, he, he runs this youth group on Sunday night. Can I come? I said, sure, you can come. Well, that resulted in a bunch of Jewish kids coming to what's called Senior Life at that time. It was the youth group here. And then coming on our Colorado ski trips, and um, one day, Lewis buzzed me in my office and said, Ron, would you come up here? Sam Stahl has just left my office. I need to talk to you about something. So I walked in, and Lewis and Sam were, like, very close, good buddies. And Lewis said, Ron, Sam Stahl is here. He's upset. You're going on to the campus of Alma Heights High School and proselytizing his kids. Tell me what you do when you go down. I said, Lewis, I never go to talk about Christ unless they bring it up. It's a ministry of presence. But if they ask about Jesus, I'm, just, I'm not going to go. I can't talk about that. So I said, I've never gone. And he said, that's what I told Sam. And Sam said, you're to tell your associate to stop. I'm sitting there going, oh, I guess this is the end of that. And he said, I told him, no, that's what Ron's called to do. And I back him all the way. And that, they never recovered from that. So, Rabbi Stahl went to the school board at Alma Heights. And next thing I knew, I get a thing saying they were banning all religious leaders, period, not singling me out, just period, to come on campus. So I thought, okay, that kills that. So I thought, what can I do? Well, they had camp, they had uh, kids could leave campus for lunch, upper class kids. So I thought, well, I'll take one of the church vans and I'll go up there. And we, we recalled it Lunch with Ron. And the first 15 kids that got there got in the van. And we go to Wendy's. We only had a half an hour. So we go down there. And again, it was just a ministry of presence. You don't have a lot of time to talk about anything when you're spread out in Wendy's. Um, that went on for a while. I thought, this is not very effective. So, Milt, thank you for scheduling a CAM board meeting at Christ Lutheran. And we're in the, one of the Sunday school classrooms there, right across from the high school. And I'm sitting there, and the bell rings, and I see all these kids pour out, heading to wherever. And I thought, what if I went to the pastor, I knew the pastor, Steve Rohde, and asked him, could we have a lunch here in the, their fellowship hall? And he okayed it. And make a long story short, Christ Lutheran didn't, and then I got my buddy Toby Michelson, who was a tennis coach at junior school. He's a Messianic Jew. I said, Toby, help me with this. And we founded Curios the Sunday after Easter 1986. And then Christ Lutheran kicked us out because we were too evangelical. I'm thinking, well, what are we going to do now? Mary Mize Helms, some of you may remember her. 
She comes to me and says, Ron, I got the answer. The mule stall. I said, no, no, that's on campus. I'm banned from... The mule pushers own that property. You're, I've checked with the superintendent, the principal. So the next week we started, and now it is on Alamo Heights campus because they bought that from the mule pushers. But I pray every day that God will protect that ministry and keep it on campus. So it'll be the 30, what, 35th year that still going on. Well, we're way over time. I'm sorry, folks. Um, verses 18 through 21, let me sum it up by saying godly character plus God-given wisdom uh, plus God's supernatural power equals authority. Um, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better. And Daniel was there until the time of King Cyrus. Godly wisdom plus godly anointing equals authority. Let me close with a true story. Mother Teresa addressed thousands of people on the commons of Harvard University. This was back in the 80s. And she, this little tiny nun, got up there and began saying things like, you know, I know many of you are sleeping with each other and not married, and that really is an abomination to God. Chuck Colson, I heard this from him. He said he was there. And he was waiting for the crowd to rise up and throw at it. And she's, she took abortion on the carpet and infanticide and, all kind, and stuff that was going on in the United States, which was not as bad then as now. Colson said nobody said a word in protest. They just... And he said, that's because she had authority. Where does authority come from? It comes from godly wisdom, which God gave to her, and an anointing. You know, her authority came from picking up lepers in the streets of Calcutta and treating them like Jesus. And when you and I act like Jesus, and I don't always, that gives us authority, not power given to us by the government or the church. or anything. When you and I act like Jesus and live according to his word and don't break character, that gives us authority. Like James, a custodian, but he carried more weight on that campus than anybody else. Be Christ man, be Christ woman, continually conforming yourself, honing yourself with his word, and that's the way to navigate Babylonian exile and North American exile. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, you've revealed who you are to us supremely in Jesus Christ. When we want to know who, what you really look like, we only need to look at Christ, the Christ we find in the New Testament, not the Christ we shape out of the cultural stuff around us. Uh, like Daniel, infuse us with a determination to not break character, to be Christ's men and women, whatever is happening around us. May our relationship with Christ be our anchor in every storm. May that make us uh, unassailable, unshakable, um, no matter what is swirling around us. 
may people look at us and be able to tell that we have spent time with you, that we walk with you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name.